Whoa, Matt, we got sound effects on this podcast now, don't we? Y- yes, yes, we do. We're moving up in the world. Yes, we do. With a bullet podcast this week, my name's Todd Golden. This guy talking with me is Matt Golden. Matt, how are you Hi, doing? everybody. Hi. What's, what's up? Um, not too much. Um... <laughs> Well, this cho- this 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 countdown is your choice. So, why don't you give us an intro and uh, kind of enlighten us why you wanted to do this one? Let's see. Well, we'd already done an albums chart from the '60s, and I kind of wanted to go back and do a singles chart. Um, my initial thought was to go back to '64, um, March '64, would have been the height of Beatlemania. But I looked at the chart, and there was almost too much Beatles on it. So I decided to look for another chart, and I picked March 12th, um, 1966. Um, and, and what were we doing in March 1966? Um, well, I was still about 12 years away from being born. So I know I was, um, um, I was in Vietnam. Oh, okay okay if you believe in reincarnation i might have been in vietnam and yeah, i'm not saying probably. i fought in the war i'm not saying i fought in the war i just might have been like a person there so no I, I wasn't born yet either so we're dealing with our parents high school era right here this was uh, i have to admit year before kinda, they graduated yeah so i have to admit i was kind of uh trepidatious about this one not that i don't like 60s music i really do but I wasn't sure how knowledgeable I be. I would be about all this, and uh, I had a lot of fun with this one. It was a good choice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was surprised by a lot of it, and it's kind of a kind of a transitional period, um, kind of the end of the British invasion period. And actually, coincidentally, I found out after I picked this that um, the week of this chart, Eight Miles High was released, and the Stones were recording Peanut Black. And both of those are kind of considered um, some of the earliest psychedelic rock songs. So kind of yep. moving into that period. Or so what, so what, you're saying, what you're saying is America started to take drugs. Yeah, yeah, kind of. <laughs> okay. All right, well, let's get started. Uh, number 40 is yours, and it's a very well-known song. Number 40 is Barbara Ann by the Beach Boys. Right, and this is by far the best known version of the song. The original was done by a doo-wop group, um, the Regents. Um, their version went to the top 20 in 1961. But if you ask anybody who sang Barbara Ann, they're going to say the Beach Boys. Um, it was on the Beach Boys party album, uh, which was presented as a real recording of an impromptu Beach Boys concert at a party, but it wasn't. Um, they recorded the tracks the way they normally would do, and um, they dubbed in laughter, background conversations, clinking glasses, and on this cl- track, um, clinking ashtrays later on. And speaking of the ashtrays, um, legendary Wrecking Crew drummer Hal Blaine is credited as the ashtray player here. Wow, um, he could do everything. Yes, yes, and the wrecking crew will come up a lot in this chart actually but i actually think that kind of offhand 
I mean, it's fake, but that offhand kind of liveish feel to this song actually helps this song quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, they did a really good job of selling it. Um, there's flubbed lines and there's false starts throughout the song. Um, and actually, not not many people know this, but they did get a special guest on this. Um, Dean Torrance from Jan and Dean is singing the falsetto part with Brian Wilson on the song. So yeah, kind of inviting their friends along kind of adds to the party atmosphere also. I didn't, I didn't realize it until I, I liked this on Spotify, but there's a lot of, there's actually false endings to this song. You never hear it on the radio because they usually edit that out, but um, you know, they go through the, the whole harmonized Barbara Ann thing several different times, kind of joke, you know, joking around, but there were a lot of albums that had fake. And we talked about one when we did the sixties album one that had fake crowd noise piped in. I know I have one cannonball Adderley's mercy, mercy, mercy album is a fake live album. They like piped in crowd noise to make it sound like it was live, but it might've been live in the studio, but it wasn't a real live album. So I guess that was kind of a common tactic back in those days. So, Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. And um, since this is 1966 and this is the beach boys, uh, you have to mention pet sounds and that came out. You don't have to, but you just did. I, I, uh, yes. And came out a couple months after this and um, obviously almost the exact opposite of recording techniques. (laughs) Right. Yeah, but that's where Brian Wilson wanted a hundred digitaroos. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, it wasn't this album. That was the album after this was the one where he made everybody dress up as firemen. Yes, <laughs> I'm, I'm referring, of course, to the Dewey Cox uh, movie. Yes, but, yes. Which it, which actually gets this period of the '60s down. I mean, I wasn't there, but it gets it down pretty damn accurate. So yeah. Yeah, very funny. But let's see what's up next up for you. Um, number thirty nine, uh, Marvin Gaye with "Wind Water Heartache." Yeah, this is a cool song. It kind of sounds like "Ain't That Peculiar," which is a better known song. Um, but the guitar is amped up a little bit in the mix and has this cool kind of. Uh, I guess it's a baritone sax solo. And uh, um, you know, I have an argument with myself a lot. I don't know how. I want to throw this out to you and whoever's listening to think about this but Marvin Gaye is one of my favorite artists and who would you consider to be the best solo male artist to come out of Motown in my opinion there's like four candidates there's Marvin Gaye Mm -hmm. there's Smokey Robinson who of course was the original Um, Stevie Wonder of course and then later on I think Michael Jackson counts obviously so who do you think is the best one out of those four they're all good i would probably give the slight edge to stevie just because he had such a long career um actually i think he's on this chart too he is yeah but i mean they all have good moments if i had to pick a best singer from motown i'd probably go with levi stubbs but he wasn't a solo artist so yeah I'd actually go the other way. I'd give the slight edge to Marvin Gaye because I feel like, like from an artistic standpoint, both he and Stevie Wonder were really, in terms of wanting their artistic independence and all that, very similar in the in the seventies. 
uh, where they kind of struck out on their own away from the Motown sound. And I, and, and they both made great albums. I have albums by both and they're both fantastic. So to pick one over the other, isn't like a diss on the other person, but um, I, I feel like Marvin Gaye was had stretched himself out a little bit more as he went on than Stevie wonder did. Um, if you actually listen to Marvin Gaye's albums, especially once funk came into play, I mean, those are so intricate and layered and so are Stevie wonders albums too. Mm-hmm. But uh, Marvin Gaye was more willing to get weird though. And not that Stevie wonder didn't. I mean, we, I think we had, did we have the secret life of plants on a recent we, one? We did. That was in our 1980 show, which is a, which is, which is a weird one by Stevie wonder. But, and of course, Marvin Gaye was unfortunately killed um, when he still was artistically relevant. So, right. Um, if the edge to Marvin Gaye, I mean, you can make it, I mean, most people would probably say Michael Jackson, honestly. I mean, you can make a, I, I wouldn't argue with that. Right. Yeah. And I wouldn't argue with any four of those guys. Smokey Robinson went a little different direction once he got away from the miracles, he went more like, uh, you know, quiet storm and all that. But, you know, a lot of people like that. So anyway, I just think I, I, I think it's a great battle of who would be the best solo artist to kind of emerge from Motown. I think the female one is pretty obviously Diana Ross. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, definitely. Yep. So anyway, if those of you out there listening want to think about that and think I'm an idiot or think I'm right, you know, have at it. So <laughs> anyway, Next up for you is uh, number 38, I Want to Go With You by Eddie Arnold. And this is my first skip. Um, the song's very similar to Make the World Go Away, which was a hit like just before this for him. So just skipping it. Make the world go away. That's <laughs> yeah, all. yeah. I, I will say that he's yeah. wearing a cool smoking jacket on the cover. So yeah, give him that um cool moving on to number 37 for you we have um the five americans with i see the light yeah the five americans most famous song is western union and there's for those who only have ever really heard this music through oldie stations there's um western union man by jerry butler who's in the impressions which is you know an r&b song and then there's this song just called western union which is um, you know, Western Union do, 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 yep. do, has a kind of a, a organ in the background to kind of, you know, create the hook on that song. And this song is in the same vein as that one is very prominent organ in it. We're at the height of organ as a um, rock and roll instrument in the mid 60s. And um, yep. um, these dudes were from Durant, Oklahoma. And I saw a really cool clip of them on a Dallas TV show. And they had this interesting look going. It was interesting how the look of rock and roll and especially the Beatles influenced people. They, their haircuts were like the Beatles, but probably a little earlier than where the Beatles actually were at that point. They probably looked more like um, hard days, night era Beatles. Mm-hmm. And but they were holding their guitars up in that kind of stylized way. Like the animals did <laughs> where they held their guitars up really high yeah. to strum. And uh, so that's what the five Americans were going for. And uh, I don't think they had another hit after this. Uh, Western U- or Western Union was their only other big hit. So, yeah. Um, but this song was pretty cool. You know, it's very kind of prototypical uh, 60s, almost kind of sort of garage song, I guess. So uh-huh. give it up. Five Americans. Not bad. Yep. So 
Next up for you is number 36, Shake Me, Wake Me When It's Over by The Four Tops. See, and it's a classic Motown track and one of The Four Tops' better known songs. And like most of their singles, um, they're teamed up with the Helen Dozier Holland partnership. Um, it's a very upbeat song, but the lyrics are definitely downbeat. Um, basically, Levi Stubbs hears his neighbors gossiping. Zap, ah gossiping about him and his girlfriend and how she isn't really into him and he thinks he's just imagining this it's just a nightmare so um shake him wake him when it's over (laughs) yeah there's gonna be a buttload of motown on this chart yeah it's and this chart is almost almost a battle between the funk brothers from motown and the wrecking crew from l.a yeah, it really is. And Holland Dozier Holland are the songwriters on most of these songs too. Cause I know I kind of have a, I know I have a Holland Dozier Holland one coming or several of them coming up too. But so if you think of the classic Motown sound before they stretched out a little bit in the late sixties and got, you know, into Afro soul and all that kind of thing, this is <clears throat> right in the wheelhouse, right in your wheelhouse. If you're into that kind of Motown. Definitely. So. Yeah. Obviously, the Four Tops are pretty much avatars of what Motown was all about. So Four Tops fascinate me because it's they, they always kind of get lumped in with the Temptations. You know, makes sense. They're both, you know, multi, you know, multi-personnel vocal <laughs> groups. I was, it's interesting to me. The Four Tops hardly had any personnel turnover in their entire careers, and they lasted <clears throat> you know, as long as the Temptations did. Well, they, Temptations they started were... way before the Temptations, too. They started back in the 40s, yeah. I think. It's pretty amazing how stable they were. And then the Temptations were the other way around. They had quite a few different members. So, um, but yeah, it's a yep. cool song. Let's see. Well, let's move on to number 35. Batman by Neil Hefty. Yeah, the Batman theme. Now, Batman is going to come up quite a bit on this uh, on this countdown. Obviously, the Batman TV show was uh, a phenomenon when it came out, and uh, I loved the Batman TV show was when I was a kid, and I loved it unironically. I didn't get that it was basically a yeah, joke, neither did I. You know, yeah. And now I I don't see it too often these days, but when I do see it, I think it's even better because now I kind of get the joke. So yeah. Um, but the music from it, this song is awesome. I love this song. And um, I picked it up one time a couple months ago. I was on a road trip for work and um, was going through songs that had, I was playing a playlist of organ songs and um, kind of uh, uh, one of my favorite instruments is a Fender uh, Rhodes piano and a Wur- and, and Wurlitzer, which is a close cousin of the fender roads anyway i was listening to a playlist and this popped up on it and of course the most people have only ever really heard the first verse which is the batman you know that part but then neil hefty rolls into like this cool ass organ solo in the middle of it which you never hear that part of it Mm -hmm. and so it's very 60s very cool um apparently the longtime rumor was that the the batmans that you hear in the song were not singers they were actually brass instruments yeah. but neil hefty said that uh that wasn't true that they were actually um um actually background singers um 
somebody made a joke too back then that it was uh, when Neil Hefty, of course, wrote the song that it should have been credited as as music and word by Neil Hefty, since there's literally only one word in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but this song was extremely uh, heavily covered um, in the wake of this song. In fact, it pops up again on the chart. Yeah, but, I, I know that the Who um, covered it in 1966. Jan and Dean did, the Who did, the Kinks did, the Jam did, Sun Ra of all people did. And then Space Truckin' by Deep Purple, while it's not a cover of this song, it's based on the melody from this song. So um, this is an extremely influential song, very influential TV show. Um, So hats off to Neil Hefty. He created kind of a touchstone of the culture in 1966 with this song. So very cool. But next up for you is number 34, The Rains Came by the Sir Douglas Quintet. See, Sir Douglas Quintet were a band from San Antonio. Um, they were led by Doug Som and Augie Myers. Um, Doug Som was the lead singer. Augie Myers played the organ. And they both came um, kind of cult figures in the Texas music scene afterwards. Um, Augie Myers ended up in Dylan's band at one point. Um but this was their first band, and um, when they first started, their managers tried to pass them off as British, um, which didn't really work because Sam had a very thick Texas voice, and two of the other guys of the band were Hispanic, so they couldn't really pull it off. Um, yeah. But this was song was a follow-up to their big hit, She's About a Mover, and like She's About a Mover, it has a very Ray Charles it um but this is more of a ballad and um mentioned the oregon on one of the other tracks and this definitely this and she's about a mover feature a lot of oregon in it and um in 1977 freddie fender covered this and um ended up making to the top five in the country charts and Fender actually teamed up with Simon Myers in the 90s as the Texas Tornadoes, and they had more success in the country charts. So, yeah. Yeah, that's one of those artists I've never really, for some reason, I have a blank spot on. I don't, I've never really heard much of, of or really any of Sir Douglas Quintet. I've always heard of them, but never really listened to them that much. Pretty good band. I mean, yeah, I'm sure they are. I, I mean, obviously the the Sam Ray Charles com- comparison comes up a lot. I mean, their voices are almost identical. So, yeah. <laughs> what's what's next? Let's see, next for you, number thirty three, um, Dean Martin. Somewhere there's a someone. Yep, and this is your pretty prototypical Dean Martin crooner. Um, uh, actually kind of a little bit up-tempo for, for Dean Martin, but he was busy in 1966. He released five <laughs> albums this year. And that's um, including, you know, all the other stuff he was doing. He was doing his TV. His TV show was on by then. Um, Matt Helm movies were being made by then. And um, so Dean Martin was... You know, you think of the late 60s as the time of counterculture, but Dean Martin was huge in the late mm-hmm. 60s. And, you know, it goes to show that sometimes, you know, when we and I, and I think of this, too, with our own era in the 90s, where 
everybody's like, Oh man, it was all grunge. And I was like, well, yeah, a lot of people did listen to that and kind of live that life, but there was a shit ton more people that didn't. And, you know, I'm sure that was true in the sixties too, where there was, you know, obviously an audience for Dean Martin, you know, the, our grandparents generation would have uh, still been into Mm -hmm. him. And frankly, I think a lot of our dad's generation, I I think, I think our mom actually had a Martin album. So good Uh, for her. I mean, I like Dean Martin. So, um, the the clip from his TV show is funny from this because uh, there's a part like a lot of songs in the Dean Martin mode where there's kind of background singers and strings where he's not singing. So he just stands there on stage and kind of deadpan, just stares straight into the camera kind of knowingly as if to say, you know, I'm not really singing right now. This is, you know, a recording. So it's, it's pretty funny, but um so yeah, I I I've I really like D. Martin a lot. I love his Christmas album, which I actually I don't own, but I listen mm-hmm. to. That is uh, that's primo stuff. So, uh, so yeah, Dean Martin isn't just the guy who was in for our age Cannonball Run. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Although he is, he's actually I think he's funny in that movie yeah, too. Yeah, that was that was actually the um, first movie I remember seeing in the theater too. So. Dean Martin was part of that memory, I guess. I I honestly don't know the first (laughs) movie I remember seeing in a theater now that you mention it. But um, anyway, next up for you, number 32, Call Me by Chris Montez. This was the comeback single for Montez. Um, He had a big hit in 1963 with Let's Dance, which is kind of a proto garage rock tune. And while he was touring the UK during the height of that, um, the Beatles actually open up for him. Um, he's probably one of the very few people on earth who can actually make that claim that the Beatles opened up for him. Uh, but he kind of drifted away from the music scene for a couple of years. And he was brought back by Herb Alpert. And Herb Alpert kind of suggested that he make a change in direction. Instead of doing garage rock, he should kind of go for like a middle of the road kind of lighter pop sound and this song was the result of that um it's actually a patula clark cover has an airy kind of almost loungy sunshine pop feel to it almost the exact opposite of less dance and i'd never heard this song before we started doing the research for it and i never would have guessed it was him and I actually like it quite a bit too. So I think when I made a 1966 playlist at one point, I remember him popping up on it, but I don't recall if it was this song or not. So it, it probably um, was, this but song. I, I think I do this remember was the only song that charted from this album. I, I do remember it was pretty, you know, um, you know, kind of like you said, middle of the road. Yep. So, see but it was kind of falling down the chart at this point um it did make it up to 22 and actually had just fallen from 22 the week before so yeah (laughs) Uh, cool good chris montez Uh, let's see but moving on to number 31 um bj thomas and the triumphs i'm so lonesome i can cry yeah, this is my first skip. This would be a Hank Williams Jr. cover, or Hank, Hank Williams Jr., Hank Williams cover. Um, it's okay, but it's nothing special. Al Green did the definitive cover of this one. I actually liked but, this version. Uh, so I, I, I hadn't heard it before. It's okay. It's, uh, 
it's fine, but it's a skip. So I'm moving on. Number 30 for you, It's Too Late by Bobby Goldsboro. And this one's a skip for me. Um, Not really a fan of Bobby Goldsboro. I think this this is like the third time that Bobby Goldsboro has come up on one of our charts, which is kind of amazing. (laughs) But but, yeah, it's because he was so awesome. Yes, yes, he was. But it's a skip, so... Well, we're up to your long-distance dedication, okay, too. Um, let's see here. At number 91, we have the Barbarians with Multi. Um, the okay. Barbarians were a garage rock band from Provincetown, Massachusetts, out on Cape Cod. And they had a, hit, they had a minor hit prior to this with Are You a Boy or Are You a Girl? And they essentially sounded... About the same as every other garage band from this time period, but there was one thing that made them stand out, and that was their drummer, Victor Multi Molten. And Multi wasn't your typical drummer. Um, he had a prosthetic hook on his left hand, which was the result of a fireworks accident. And there's only a couple of clips that exist of the band playing live, like actually playing live. And one was for the Tammy show, and um, he was actually a pretty good drummer, um, despite his disability. But anyway, about this song, um, their follow-up to Are You a Boy or Are You a Girl went nowhere, so their label sat them down and said, hey, we've got an idea. We want you to do a song about Multi's hand. And Multi and the rest of the band were horrified by this and said no. But the guys for the label said, well, we already wrote the song. I mean, all you have to do is sing it, Multi. And if you don't like it, we won't release it. So Multi went along with this to appease the label. Uh, the rest of the band sat out on the session and they were replaced by studio mu- musicians. And I just like to list those musician- musicians for you. Uh, guitar, he had Robbie Robertson. Bass, Rick Danko. Piano, Richard Manuel, Oregon, Garth Hudson, and drums, Levon Helm. Hey, I yes, know those it was, guys. It was the band before they were the band, actually, the band before they went on tour with Dylan. Um, but Multi still didn't like the song after the session and told the label to toss it out. And they thought they were done with it, but they went out and played a gig and people were calling out, play multi play multi and the band was like what how do you know that song and as you could guess and this is pretty obvious the label released it anyway um it did get up back on the charts um ended up peaking at number 90 um but they were so pissed off about it that they left their label and it was essentially the end of the band um the song later ended up on Lenny K's um, Nuggets compilation, which is where I first heard it. And it's kind of become a garage rock classic. Um, Multi eventually changed his tune about the song. And he likes it because it's inspired other people to overcome adversity. And I'd just like to dedicate this to anyone who has overcome adversity, like Multi. Wow. That sounds like a real dedication, not like a insincere fake one. Yeah, like the yeah, ones I know. normally do. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't really going for that. Plus, take that. Re- like that. 
Yeah, take that Rick <laughs> Allen from Def Leppard. You're just a right. sellout. But yeah, well, that's interesting. So number twenty nine uh, for you, Roger Miller with husbands and wives. Yeah, it's a pretty neat song. It's a mid tempo song and a song about a couple breaking up, which um I'm it seems like the that kind of countryish breakup type song seemed to be later on in the country uh history, but this was one of them and uh it was kind of recorded as a country waltz, so you can mm. waltz to it if you want. Um, it has a cool kind of almost flamenco guitar solo in the middle of it, which is interesting. And, uh, it's been oft covered by many, uh, country stars It uh, this song actually got to number 25 on the country chart, um, in 1966 and would eventually get up to number 26 on the hot 100. So, uh, but if you know, Roger Miller, of course, King of the road is his most famous song. And so it's delivered in that sort of vocal mm-hmm. style and uh you know kind of a story song and uh yep. you know kind of cool yeah i mean most most of the songs of his that did end up become coming famous are kind of humorous and this is kind of little shift in the in direction i think yeah this one's yeah this one's more uh, of a serious tone especially for roger miller so but uh <clears throat> Moving on, number 28 is Crying Time See, by Ray Charles. Ray, T- Ray Charles was known to dip his toes into country music from time to time, and this is an example of that. Um, it's a Buck Owens cover, and it's actually pretty faithful to the Buck Owens version. Um, Ray kind of emulates um, Owens' trademark harmonies with Don Rich, and he does it with the Raylettes, and Ray's version was more successful. Um, Owens left his as a B-side, but this went up to the top 10 and ended up picking up a couple Grammys, um, one for Best R&B Recording and one for Best R&B Solo Performance. And while I was researching this, I found a clip of Ray and Buck performing a duet of this on an old episode of Hee Haw. And it's actually a pretty good performance, I have to say. And one thing, I I couldn't find this, but one thing that sticks out of my mind about this song is um, there's a documentary about the Clinton campaign from 1992 called The War Room. And occasionally in it, they play clips of um, the first George Bush basically ripping on Bill Clinton and one of them, he references this song, and it's hilarious. It's like, and I'll tell that Arkansas governor, it's crying time. <laughs> but it's, I, I couldn't find the clip of the whole movie, so I couldn't, couldn't find the actual quote. But it's it's funny. So, yeah. <laughs> but cool. um, let's move on to 27 for you. Um Martha and the Vandellas, My Baby Loves Me. Well, this would be my second skip, and not because it's a bad song, but it's just kind of there. It's just kind of average. We've got another Motown song. We got a lot of those. So this one's getting skipped by me. Um, Number 26 is Woman by Peter Peter and Gordon. Gordon were Peter Asher and Gordon Waller, and I often confuse them with Chad and Jeremy. they even looked alike. Um, one guy had like long brown hair. One guy had red hair and glasses. 
And the funny thing is that Peter from Peter and Gordon actually tours with Jeremy from Chad and Jeremy now as Peter and Jeremy. But, uh, he also does a lot of stuff on Sirius XM too. He's yeah. all over that channel. But anyway, this song was written by Paul McCartney. Um, Paul was dating Peter Asher's sister, Jane, at the time. And he kind of used that connection to get rid of songs that weren't quite up to the Beatles standards. Um, obviously, Paul would get the royalties from the singles and Peter and Gordon do that if they put anything out with Lennon McCartney label on it, um, they'd probably have a hit on their hands. So it was a win-win situation. And in fact, their best-known song, World Without Love, came out of this arrangement. Um, but for this song, McCartney decided to do something a little different. Um, he released it under a pseudonym. The pseudonym was Bernard Webb. And he wanted to see if Peter and Gordon could get a hit without his name on it. But he also wanted to see if one of his songs would sell without the notoriety of the Beatles. And um, it, I mean, it made it up to number 14, but it's not really his best efforts. Um, it's very repetitive. Um, the word woman is mentioned um, 19 times in the song. Um, and the producer um, made a lot of choices that George Martin wouldn't have done if this was actually saved for the Beatles. Um, kind of queasy strings, kind of like cheesy brass and stuff like that. But um, after Peter and Gordon, Peter Asher eventually went out to have a very successful career as a producer in the 70s. Um, ended up helming most of James Taylor and Linda Rodstadt's albums. And his partnership with Taylor actually also came from a Beatles connection. Um, Asher was the head of Apple when um, they signed James Taylor. Um, James Taylor put out his first album, on an Apple Records and kind of continued once both of them left Apple. So, so that's, so that's, <laughs> I thought when I was younger, I thought Peter and Gordon was Peter Brady and Gordon from Sesame Street. <laughs> okay. I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't really think that. I okay. just made that up. <laughs> Cool that, that, that'd be an interesting duo I think <laughs> it would be it's my, it, it's my hair it's my <laughs> hair for those who don't know that's a infomercial for hair replacement stuff that that's literally his only line in the oh, whole commercial God. Peter Brady I, I, I haven't actually seen that but yeah Peter how the hell have you not seen that commercial? That has been on for like 10 years now. But um, but Peter Asher, as you mentioned, he's, as I said, he's on the satellite radio a lot. He's on the Beatles channel quite a bit. He's kind of make, you know, kind of, uh, he tells a lot of stories that mostly, of course, about Paul McCartney. So so he's still in there living, living yeah. that time period. So let's see, but let's move along here to 25, which is The Loved Spoonful with Daydream. Well, the Love and Spoonful, Spoonful were at the top of their game at this point. Um, and so was Sunshine Pop. You mentioned the Wrecking Crew, who recorded a lot of 
Sunshine Pop. Love and Spoonful didn't need the Wrecking Crew. They were a real band. Um, so, but my thing is with this song, and it's not a bad song or anything like that, but the more whimsical the Love and Spoonful are, the less I tend to care for them. I'm definitely in the mode of you didn't have to be so nice and do you believe in magic, kind of their up-tempo <laughs> type songs. Um, this one isn't. It's more of a um, it's a it's a slower, like I said, kind of a whimsical type of song. Um, it originated with an attempt to rewrite Baby Love by the Supremes by John Sebastian, who, of course, was, um, you know, the main songwriter, the, the songwriter for the Love and Spoonful. And then supposedly this song inspired Paul McCartney to write <laughs> Good Day Sunshine, uh, which came out not too long afterwards. So and also john sebastian's look at the time he was one of the first ones to really kind of rock the the sideburns with the long hair and uh, john lennon copied it that's how john lennon got his late 60s type of look he um he uh got that from john sebastian so the love and spoonful were pretty influential their their run of hits wasn't actually that long they they were only really hit makers for maybe like two years and uh but you know, like I said, this one isn't my favorite, but they made some pretty cool songs. Another one I like is Nashville Cats, which is, um, which I thought came out a lot later than it did. But they were one of the first, I mean, apart from the Beatles, I suppose, they were one of the first ones to delve into country music. And probably one of the first, I mean, that song has some irony to it, but they are actually trying yeah, to play country yeah. in it. So, uh, so anyway, but this is uh, one of their most famous ones. And um kind of a song that represents the sunshine pop that was uh, big at the time before like you like you mentioned earlier what was coming in terms of psychedelic music this was what came right before <laughs> psychedelic music so but uh switching gears for you number 24 and i love this song six three four five seven eight nine yep and this was written by that was like the worst that was the worst, like, I, I wasn't even trying to sing it, but it almost sounded like I was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was yeah. pretty awful. <laughs> but it's, um, this one was written by Steve Cropper of the book of Booker T and the MGs and Eddie Floyd, who's best known for singing Knock on Wood. And it's a takeoff on the Marvelettes, Beachwood 45789. Um, but this has a rougher, dirtier vibe to it. Um, Marvelettes wanted you to call him up for a nice date. Um, Wilson Pickett wants to get down to business. <laughs> it's, um, this was their this was Pickett's second top forty hit. Um, it was coming on the heels of In the Midnight Hour. Um, made it to the top of the R and B charts, and it's been used in a lot of advertising over the years with companies kind of getting their phone number to match up with the melody of the chorus for some reason pizza hut stands out of my mind as a company that's done this i couldn't just be imagining this but i seem to remember them like using their delivery number as really yeah i don't i don't remember that eh, could be. i think you're high <laughs> but yeah, and I, I should that's probably fine. mention that um Pickett and Eddie Floyd performed this song in the Blues Brothers sequel. And um, they portrayed owners of a phone sex line. <laughs> <It's>... 
You mean the one the one yeah, they put out like I in the late actually 90s? watched the clip for this. I've never seen the full movie and it was yeah. I mean, it is actually Wilson Pickett and Eddie Floyd, but it's still like, God, why are they in this? <laughs> yeah, I feel bad for both of those guys. Oh, but this brings to mind another question. Although Wilson Pickett wasn't a Stax artist for his whole career, obviously he's working with Stax people on this. What's better, Stax or Motown? I kind of prefer Stax, but I mean, I kind of like them both. I'm kind of going through more of a Motown phase right now, but I oh, think yeah, overall... Yeah, yeah. You, can, you, you, can, you can love them both. I mean, that, that, yeah, that's, there's no question of that, but if you had to pick I'd, one, I'd probably pick which Stax. one would you pick? Yeah, me too. Stacks is harder yeah. edged, but they're both great. Yeah. Let's see, so. let's, let's go on to twenty three, which is the turtles with you, baby. Yeah, and this is awesome. This is some fantastic what they later would call jangle pop, with uh, kind of the, you know, influenced by the Beatles guitar sound that was so prevalent at the time and. Um, straight from guitar pop heaven. You and I both are big power pop fans. This isn't really a power pop song. It's just a straight up pop song, but it is guitar driven and would have influenced some of the bands that we would have liked later without a doubt. And the Turtles at the time, they were on their, and they're another one of these sunshine pop bands that were big at the time. You mm-hmm. think of the mamas and the papas and uh, the association and um, um, um maybe somebody out that I was trying to think of um, the Buckingham's fans like that. I mean, they were mm-hmm. um, sunshine pop. And so the turtles were one of the better sunshine pop bands and they were probably more, even a little bit more guitar driven than some of the others. But this was the, this was right before um, happy together, which is the turtles most famous song. And um, you know, this song is one of those songs, like you wouldn't recognize it by title but it gets played all the time on oldie stations and it wouldn't even really occur to you that it was the turtles because they later on had a little bit more of a distinctive mm-hmm. sound with Flo and Eddie and all that. But uh, they're definitely a band I need to explore a lot more of. I think of the sunshine pop bands, I think they're my favorite one, you know, with the songs I know of anyway. So, <clears throat> and this one's right in that wheelhouse. So really cool shit from the uh, turtles and, um, and I like the animal <laughs> turtle as oh, well. So, well, yeah, I'm it's like with you on both. It all works. It's the band at uh, the animal. Yes, we are pro band and yes, we are pro yes. animal turtle. Pro pro terrapin, and yeah. box turtles and whatnot. So, next up for you, uh, switching gears again, number twenty-two, baby See, scratch my back by I'm Slim skipping Harpo. this. Um, had to skip had to skip something, but he's no man kind of an influential blues musician, but right. This song's cool too. <laughs> How dare you? But I had I had to skip something, so I just decided to skip okay. this. You get the right to your skip. I get the right to okay. say okay. that's bullshit. <laughs> um, so now that we've okay. made that notation. Number twenty one for you is Sonny and Cher with What Now I Love. Well, this would be a skip for me. It's not one of Sonny and Cher's better ones, and okay. <clears throat> I'm going to leave it on the table. But it, it does, does lead to my long-distance dedication, and 
Um, I'm going to roll with just barely out of the top 40, and it would rise well into the top 40 shortly. But I'm going to go with this old heart of mine mm-hmm. by the Isley Brothers. And um, I like to do this sometimes. I did it a couple weeks ago with Led Zeppelin. I just want to dedicate this to the Isley Brothers because um, they had just a fantastic and really multi varied career, um, you know, that was. 60s 70s and even 80s i think they had a hit in the 2000s too ronnie i think ronnie i teamed up with yeah r kelly or something like that but um they were only at motown very very briefly um and this was the only song that really is well known from their motown period but this is one of the best motown songs there is um you know ronnie isley mixed with the funk brothers mixed with the older I or the, his his I say older brothers because there was later another wave of brothers who came in in the seventies, but um, just a perfect combination. I mean, I, this is actually one of my favorite Motown songs of all time, and I mean they were a legitimately innovative band. I mean, you think Twist and Shout, which they originally recorded, mm-hmm. um, influenced the Beatles uh, in the mid sixties. They gave Jimi Hendrix his first job. He was their guitar player for about a year maybe or maybe a little less but um i have an isley brothers compilation where they have Jimi hendrix playing on one of their songs and you know i mean it's hard to ascertain you know you you wouldn't guess what came you know shortly after that but it's cool that they gave him his break and then when they as i mentioned incorporated the younger brothers in the early 70s and also had started their own record label at that time which other than james brown uh, was really rare for an R&B artist to do at the time. Um, they really were innovators mm-hmm. um, in funk music. Um, and um, so, and then later on with disco and dance music in the late 70s. So I love the Isley Brothers. They're one of my favorites. Um, this song is one of their best songs, but they have a lot of great songs. And so simple dedication for me this week. I'm going to throw it out there to, uh, you know, one of the longest tenured and you know, a, a band that really kept up their quality for quite a long period of time. So good yep. for you, Isaac. It's a great song. You got too, my dab. I have to add. It is covered by a lot of, you know, later on covered at, and was a hit for Rod Stewart. Actually, he covered it twice. He covered it once in the 70s and once in the uh, early 90s, I think. So, um, so uh, yeah, this song and this it, like I said, the Funk Brothers, who were the you know the musicians for Motown, really kind of come alive in this song too. And of course, there's the trademark sax solo. You know that Motown. You know we talk about '70s and '80s sax, '60s yeah, sax, Motown sax yeah. to me. So this song has it. So, um, yep. but yeah, this old heart of mine, great song. Moving on, number twenty. When liking turns to love, it's another kind of country ballad similar to Eddie Arnold earlier on in the charts. So just skipping it. Okay, at number 19, we have the Marvelettes with um, Don't Mess with Bill. Well, Matt, I know you're a big Small Faces fan. And every time I hear this song, um, I Small Faces totally copped it for long ago and worlds apart from Ogden's Nut Gone Flake. You ever picked up on that? I hadn't picked up on that until you just mentioned that. But yeah, you, are, you are right about that. 
yeah, go listen to it. It is a direct cop of this song. And it is a cool Motown song. And um, it sort of bridges the gap between traditional Motown and kind of cocktail soul to some degree, uh, because it's not an up-tempo song. It's more of a slower mid-tempo type of song. And it's got that prominent vibraphone on it, which this was also, there's a lot of songs on my list that had a lot of vibraphone in it, which does kind of give it a cool sheen to a song. And um, it was actually the last top 10 hit for the Marvelettes and um, one of their better ones. I've always thought this song was super cool. So, mm-hmm. but that moves us on to number 18 at the scene by the Dave Clark five. See, and I was shocked that I was able to listen to this song at all because um, Dave Clark owns all the rights to his catalog and he's extremely protective of it. And he's also not a fan of reissues. Um, the entire Dave Clark discography went out of print in the late 70s. And with the exception of a greatest hits compilation that came out in the 90s, it stayed out of print. Um, none of the individual albums were released on CD. Um, if you want, if you liked Platter all, uh, Platter all Over or Bits and Pieces and you wanted to dive further into the catalog, you were screwed unless you wanted to track it down on vinyl. But it's all on Spotify now. And kind of as a result of that stuff being out of print, it's made them more of a footnote in history they should be which is sad because they were actually the second biggest band of the british invasion in terms of sales um everybody assumes that it went um beatles stones kinks and then everybody else fourth but it was actually the beatles dave clark five hermits hermits and the stones were a very distant fourth everybody else was after that um but this song is pretty typical of the Dave Clark Five sound. Um, shouted vocals, kind of a baritone sax riff, um, stomping beats, um, and a big drum break. Um, the last two elements kind of owing to the fact that Dave Clark was the drummer for the Dave Clark Five. And the song itself is almost identical to I Like It Like That, which the Dave Clark five covered and Freddie boom, boom cannons um, where the action is. Um, They're telling you about a club. That's awesome. And you should check it out. Um, I, there's a Petula Clark song that's like that, but it doesn't sound like this, but um, anyway, um, um, kind of influential because I mean, they are, kind of to the garage rock scene. I know Bruce Springsteen covers Glad All Over a lot. Um, obviously the stomping sound and a lot of other songs influenced Slade and uh, probably Gary Glitter. Um, kind of a lot of the early glam rock type stuff. Also. <clears throat> so, so They're big at soccer matches in England because um, Glad All Over is Crystal Palace's like their team song. Which, and, which is funny because Dave Clark's from Tottenham, another part of England. I'm, right. I'm assuming he was a Tottenham Hotspur fan. <laughs> Wouldn't know. <laughs> right. He wasn't. He, he wasn't a Leeds fan that much. I know, but uh, yeah, and they actually called the Dave Clark variants of the British Invasion the Tottenham Sound, 
So yeah, I, because they had to have been the only other band in Tottenham too. So yeah, the uh, Tottenham being in London if, for people who don't know. But um, so yeah, I like the Dave Clark Five in small, in, you know, in in small doses. I don't want to listen to that all the time, but um, but bits and pieces and Glad All Over are cool songs. I like those songs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, they the rock. Song, yeah, the song that was on this chart, I'm not really a fan of, but. Some of their other stuff, um, any way you want it's pretty good. Um, glad all over, obviously. So, yeah. yeah. And Dave Clark was smart enough, as you mentioned, to make himself pretty wealthy out of all this, too. I mean, he's probably one of the few 60s artists to really not have a battle with his songwriting and musical legacy like almost everybody else did. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. For better or worse. So. Right. See, What's well, next? moving on to number 17, it's Batman again. Um, the Marquettes with the Batman theme. Yeah, this is a skip since we already talked about Batman. This one's a little wilder than the original one, but there's no need to rehash all the Batman stuff. So I'm going to move on. Um, number 16, we go back to Detroit. My World is Empty Without You by the Supremes. See, this is one of the Supremes classics, and they were totally on fire at this point. Um probably closest competition that the Beatles had on the charts overall, regardless of genre. And the song, like most of their singles was a top five and it's unique because the song's very melancholy, but it also has a really great driving beat. And it's actually a very good example of a Northern soul beat. Um, Northern soul for those who don't know is, kind of a fake genre of soul that sprung out of dance clubs in the north of England in the late 60s and 70s. And it was kind of driven by DJs and um, they'd almost exclusively danced to old soul singles that had beats similar to this song. And the DJs kind of prided themselves on obscurity. So this might not have been on too many playlists, but it's a good example of what it was. And there's actually a video of the Supremes recording the song at um, Motel, Motown's um, Hitsville USA studios um, with, the, with the Funk Brothers and a string quartet. But I ha- highly doubt that it was a film of the actual recording. It's probably just staged for a show or something. But um, the Supremes were a little too dressed up for the occasion. And I highly doubt that they had like jam all the singers, all the musicians in like a tiny little room and record them live. But it's still, still interesting to watch, I guess. They might've back then. I mean, recording was pretty rudimentary in in those days. I mean, what you're dealing with at the most, what an eight track recording thing. No, it was, it was less than that. It was probably like probably four, probably four at, at that point. Yeah. But I mean, still, I'm assuming that they would probably record the um, string quartet separate from the Funk Brothers. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> so. probably. That you know what? Thinking about it, we were just talking about the Dave Clark Five. It's not the same sound, but you know, the Supremes and the, some of their early songs did have that stomping, like in a "Come See About Me." They did that kind of stomping thing too, you know, with. Uh, almost in you know with their heels they are they have that beat in a lot of their 
early songs. Yeah, where where did my love go? Has that too? And I yeah, stop in the name of love. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, so they were. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't. They didn't copy the Dave Clark Five or anything like that. But it's kind of interesting that that sound permeated both rock and roll and R and B at the same time. So right. Yep. See, it's catchy. So <laughs> it is. See, but let's move on to fifteen, which is Dion Jackson with um, "Love Makes the World Go Around." This is a reluctant skip for me. I just had to skip something, and this was it. Um, this is another one of those vibraphone songs, but I got it, and it did, and it was a big hit in the northern soul scene that you were mentioning. But I just skipped something. There's a lot of good stuff on this one, so sorry, Dion Jackson, but you got you got to skip this week. All right. Um, that leads us to. Number 14, My Love by Petula Clark. And I, I was surprised to find out that Petula Clark had such a long career um, before we'd consider her peak. Um, she made her debut on the BBC in 1942, and she was pretty popular during the war era as a child singer. And that led to her appearing in a series of films in the post-war years. Um, she was part of a... Um, like four or five movies as the Huggets, which I didn't really delve into what the Huggets were, but it was like a family type that movie. Like, that sounds like a gang on Fraggle Rock. <laughs> it might have been that too. Um, but after that, she continued to have success as a singer in the UK and Europe um, throughout the 50s and early 60s. Um, she actually put out her first single in the States all the way back in 1951, but she didn't break through until 1964 with Downtown, uh, which was a huge hit, number one. And it happened when the entire music industry was kind of looking towards England in the wake of Beatlemania. And I'd say that her and Dusty Springfield kind of represented the female wing of the British invasion. And yeah, and Marianne Faithful probably, although she wasn't that popular here, but right. Um, I, I mean, but but influenced the sound over there, though. Yeah, definitely. And, and over there, Sandy Shaw was kind of similar, but she never made it over in the states. But um, but like Downtown, the song was written by Tony Hatch, and Clark really hated the song, and she didn't want it to be released, and actually, kind of vaguely threatened her um a and r guy over this <laughs> but it ended up getting released and it did go up to number one um kind of has a big brassy almost broadway feel to it yeah a lot of her songs kind of had that feel yeah this it. one i mean more so than the others i think but um i can remember patula clark by the time i my remembrance of like TV came around. She was, I think she was kind of big on like the variety shows in the, probably in the sixties and in the seventies and stuff like that. She, yeah, she was. Yeah. She kind of continued doing that stuff afterwards. Um, but she also kind of, kind of a little bit of history. Um, she was one half of the first interracial kiss on TV um she kissed um she it was her special and she kissed terry belafonte so wow yeah. big time 
But um, let's move along here to number 13, Stevie Wonder with Uptight, Everything's All Right. <clears throat> well, this is a very famous song, of course, and pretty much the definition of kind of the propulsive Motown song, because it just drives you right down the highway. I mean, it kind of, you know, later on, I don't know that it was intentional. I think it kind of was, but like Freeway of Love by Aretha Franklin was almost kind of a tribute to this sound that Motown put out. And from Stevie's point of view, Stevie, of course, was um, still pretty young at this point. He was still a teenager. And um, he had toured with the Rolling Stones, which I didn't realize that. I knew he had toured with them very famously in the early 70s uh, during the Stones' uh, Exile on Main Street tour. And that would have been Stevie Wonder's probably talking book, maybe, tour. Mm -hmm. But... Um, but he also toured with them in when they first came over to America. And so they were, they were, uh, you know, good friends. And this was his attempt at a tribute to satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. Hmm. Um, so pretty cool that the bands were giving each other kind of paying each other tribute by trying to follow their sound. And I think this is his best of his sixties songs. Um, the only other song I think that's in this song's class is uh, My Share More," which is a different kind of song. That's a ballad. Mm -hmm. But, um, but you know, very, very, very well-known song. If you've heard an oldie station, you'll hear Uptight eventually if you listen to it all day. So, But for good reason. It's a great song. It and, is, uh, yeah. Stevie Wonder nailed it. Apparently, he they didn't translate the lyrics into Braille, so they were reading him line by line uh the lines from this song so when you think about how propulsive this song is and the fact that he recorded it that way it makes it even more remarkable um that it has the drive that it does huh. so uh, so pretty cool and stevie wonder of course we were talking about it earlier you know one of the greatest motown artists of all time so this is his contribution to the uh, Zeke Geist of the '60s. So I, I think very cool he's stuff. Been on almost every chart that we've done, except for the '90s ones too. So kind of yeah, some some, his, some good, some bad. Yeah, kind of testament to his longevity. This, yeah, no question. And this is, of course, one of his one of his great ones. So not as well known, at least to me, anyway, is our next song, number twelve, "The Cheater." by Bob Cuban and the Inmen. And I skipped this one. This is my last skip. Um, kind of a soul one-hit wonder, um, but not a bad song, but just needed something to skip. So, um, Cool. Number 11 for you is The Four Seasons, um, Working My Way Back to You. Yeah, and this is another wing of music that was going on at the time. You think of Motown, you think of British Invasion, you think of garage bands. Um, and then you have the Four Seasons who kind of come out of the tradition of doo-wop and Eastern, East Coast uh, uh, sort of uh, blue-eyed soul, I guess you could call it. And um, this is right smack dab in the middle of their run of hits that they had in the 60s. Uh, this came right after Let's Hang On, which is my favorite one from their 60s period. And it came before I've got you under my skin and can't take my eyes off of you. Um, I'm not as big of a fan of this song. This one's um, a little slower tempo than some of their other songs, but the four, the four seasons, Frankie Valley and the four seasons, actually this one's credited. I noticed to the four seasons featuring quote, the sound of Frankie Valley 
uh, yeah, unquote. Yeah. And uh, later on, they'd be Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons. But um, really kind of, you know, they managed to, and I know you did a dedication to them um, when we did the 69 chart, but um, really cool. I mean, I, 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 you know, I'm not a big fan of that sound by a lot of other groups, but I've always liked it from the four seasons. They just did it really well and managed to keep themselves, you know, pretty relevant uh, through the period of the sixties. And then when they had a comeback in the mid seventies, um, I, I actually really liked those songs from the mid seventies. Yeah, so um, got to give it up. And of course they've made themselves famous with the, with the Jersey boys musical, which kind of tells the story of Frankie Valley. And um, I didn't know this about Frankie Valley until I was reading up on this. He, by the mid seventies, when he was recording stuff like swearing to God and who loves you and um, December, 1963, he was basically almost deaf huh. at that point. And that's why some of the other f- members of the four seasons that mixed in sang some of their songs. He, he barely sings on December, 1963. Yeah, so, I think it was their drummer. Um, that sang. Yeah. Their drummer did. Yeah. Their drummer. And he sang on who loves you quite a bit too. And he later on had surgery and mostly fixed his hearing, but by the mid seventies, his hearing was shot. Hmm. So, uh, so that makes it even more amazing that he was able to kind of be the empresario for this band. So, um, very famous, very worthy of being in the rock and roll hall of fame. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the, I, I always, I've always enjoyed the four seasons. So yeah. very cool. Um, another beloved, um, duo, is next number 10 is homeward bound by simon and garfunkel and the song is autobiographical um simon garfunkel's first album tanked so paul simon headed over to the uk to try his hand as a solo artist in their folk scene and after one of the gigs he was waiting at a railway station outside of liverpool um, heading back to london and the song came to him um and it's basically the first verse was what he was doing, sitting at a railway station, got a ticket for my destination on a tour of one night stands, suitcase and guitar in hand. Everything's planned for a poet and a one man band. Um, it's basically a road song, um, probably the first road song, kind of a became a common theme in the 70s. Um, Turn the page by Bob Seger. Um, Jackson Brown's loadout would be examples of that. Um, Stuart may have, or Simon may have also been longing to get back to the States at the time. And he did shortly afterwards when um, um, the record company decided to electrify Sounds of Silence and it um, belatedly became a hit. And um, the first thing that struck me about listening to this song kind of in a playlist of this countdown was how sophisticated it sounded compared to everything that came before that. And it's not really a knock on ev- any, everything that came, everything else on the chart, but um, never really seen it in that light. And it's one of those great things about revisiting the countdowns. Sometimes things pop out in the context of when they were produced and you notice yes, it like that. Absolutely. That's, yeah, I think that's one of my favorite things about Countdowns because, you know, you, you kind of sometimes you wonder, it's like, why, why was that song so popular? And then you hear what it was up against, um, you know, and you understand that it was a much more, you know, 
compared to the context of where it was being heard, it was either innovative or it just sounded better than the other songs that it was up against. So, yeah, I think that's kind of understated thing about why these charts are so cool in the first place to yeah. revisit them. And, but I, I actually assume this song though is about the dog movie from the nineties. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm assuming the dog movie might have been named after this, possibly, but <laughs> yeah, maybe just probably just slightly slight chance of that. I wonder how they came to that. Like, let's have a dog movie, but what should we name it? Oh, how about that Simon and Garfield <laughs> yeah, song? Yeah, yeah, and um. There's okay. one last thing that I should mention. There's actually a dispute over which station Simon actually wrote this song in. Um, Simon claims it was at Witness Station, and um, there's actually a plaque there that mentions that it was written there. Um, but some people actually went back through the old train schedules because, of course, they did. And they figured out that it may have actually been Ditton Station. So... Um, I, I guess there's train dorks that are like big enough dorks to look back at when Paul Simon was going back to London. I mean, <laughs> I'm a train dork. I'm a music dork, and that never even would have occurred to me to look. Yeah, that up. yeah. So, but maybe if I were in London, I would have maybe. But but then I still would have been looking for. Yeah, the yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if he ever did get home. Maybe that movie, yeah. I never saw it. Maybe that was a really dark movie and the dog never made it, it home. could be. I, I never saw it either. So maybe maybe, maybe that did <laughs> I, I highly doubt it was a Disney movie, I think. <laughs> so probably unlikely the dog like got ran over by a car or something. <laughs> yeah. Let's see, but let's move along here to number nine. Um, the Bobby Fuller 4 with I Fought the Law. Well, the top 10 is going to... Ha- be my opportunity to tell some of the lurid stories of rock and roll and unfortunately bobby fuller is uh, uh, one of the lurid stories of rock and roll and before i get to that this song was obviously a very famous song very uh much covered song by the clash in particular and but what bobby fuller was doing was he was trying to kind of advance the texas sound that buddy holly had become famous for uh, before he died, you know, about eight years before their, you know, in, in their late fifties. And he was from El Paso and he was trying to create a sound that, I, I don't know if he was trying to do this. I think it just developed, but um, there's not a whole lot of British invasion influence in Bobby Fuller four. So it really is kind of the next evolution of the Buddy Holly rock and, Texas rock and roll sound. And certainly I Fought the Law fits that bill. I mean, it sounds, if you didn't know, you might think it is a Buddy Holly song. If you, uh, it, it doesn't sound like him, but the sound of the music does. And he called himself the rock and roll king of the Southwest. And, um, you know, but Bobby Fuller also got mixed up with some bad characters in the recording industry. And um, shortly after this song was a hit, he was found in Hollywood Uh, dead in his car outside of his house and his death is one of the great mysteries of both Hollywood and rock and roll because it was never it was an unsolved death now it was officially ruled as a suicide uh, but they also found that Fuller ingested gasoline Um, his body had gasoline in it and the 
running theory is that he was murdered by the mob, possibly because he hooked up with a girlfriend of a prominent mobster <laughs> in L.A. Um, that's one theory. Another theory is that he was an LSD casualty. Um, another theory that probably isn't true is that he was a victim of the Manson family. That probably, seems probably a bit far-fetched. Way too early for that. Um, and Fuller, and <clears throat> I think some of this is coincidence, but he was the third artist to die under weird circumstances. Um, he was produced by Bob Keane, who also produced Richie Valens and Sam Cooke. So I think that's a coincidence. Right. Um, there were, you know, obviously Richie Valens' death was in a plane crash, but um, <clears throat> Fuller was also associated with uh, Morris Levy, who was a notorious mob-connected record company owner. So a lot of lurid details in the background of Bobby Fuller's life. Um, and an unfortunate that he left uh, the rock and roll scene so soon, because if I thought the law was any indication, it's one of those great what ifs. Yeah. Yeah. He um, had a lot of great songs. You know. Anyway, um, <clears throat> of letter dance, um, never to be forgotten. Um, all great songs. So, I, yeah. And his, and that sound would have fit in right with the kind of the country rock revival at the end of the sixties and the early seventies, he would have, fit in with that if he would have been around so um would have been interesting but unfortunately he's one of those tragic rock and roll stories where um he went pretty high and uh due to tragedy he never got a chance to follow mm -hmm. up on it so uh so but moving on from that nice light-hearted tale that i told um number eight is lightning strikes by and luke christie luke christie is a stage name for loogie um, Lugie Sacco and he's originally from Pittsburgh and he's probably best known for having a very high uh, Frankie Valley style falsetto voice um, he had a couple hits in the early 60s um, with the Gypsy Cryin' and Two Faces Have I uh, but he got drafted in the army so kind of sidelined his career for a couple years until this song and like his other hits, this was written by Christie along with Twyla Herbert, who was described as a gypsy, psychic concert pianist. And um, she was 20 years older than Christie, and it's kind of unclear if they had a relationship outside of music, but I'm going to just assume that they did. Um, his previous singles just featured as falsetto but on this song he's singing in his regular voice for most of it and it kind of builds up to the falsetto and the chorus um it's um basically the background singers are like telling him to stop and he eventually goes into the falsetto when he's saying i can't stop myself and then lightning strikes again um let's see also has kind of a unique sounding jittery guitar solo at the end of it. Yeah. I like the guitar solo from that song, even though it's probably technically badly played. It, it, it does cool, sound but... very cool. And um, the song did actually go up to number one for one week and it was kind of heading down at this point. Um, Christy picked up a couple more hits later on in the 60s and he's kind of an oldies radio stable. Um, 
<clears throat> every trick in the book being one Actually, of them. well, the title is I'm Gonna Make You Mine, but yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. But that's the yeah. hook of the song. And yeah. uh, the song ended up being covered by Klaus Nomi in the 80s. And um, Nomi's cover is actually, despite having a super weird video, is actually a lot more faithful than you would think. Um, instead of the falsetto, he kind of goes into the operatic voice, but it's similar. So, Yeah. I, I really like this song. I've always liked this song. It's, um, it sounds unique because it, it does sound like a mashup between like a girl group and Frankie Valley because of the background singers primarily. Right. Um, I don't know how many male female dynamics there were in that many 60s songs, really, if you think about it. I mean, most were either girl group sounds like the singers are in this or you know, the four seasons with, you know, obviously a male group, but this one kind of mashes up both of them. And it's, uh, um, you know, very overwrought. The lyrics are, um, you know, pretty typical of the time, but I've always thought this song. Yeah. Was yeah. It is cool. pretty good. Yeah. Let's see. And it, I mean, obviously I've mentioned it's fully stable. So have heard it a lot over the years. Um, so yeah, but um anyway let's move on to number seven um the beatles with nowhere man well this was on the uk version of rubber soul and but it was a single in the united states and was put out on yesterday and today and um john lennon wrote this song and he wrote it about himself after he had a fit of writer's block um he was having trouble and it came to him kind of in a moment of inspiration i think when you're trying to sleep and so he put it out there and uh you know pretty if you had to pick of a middle period beatles song this would be pretty high on the list of songs you might pick um you know with the the harm you know the harmonies obviously are very prominent as they are in a lot of beatles songs and um you know you also have the mid-60s kind of guitar that the beatles uh pioneered so if you had to kind of put one in the wheelhouse and maybe I, I guess this might be one of the most famous songs from uh, rubber soul, but there's a lot of yeah. them. So, um, but middle, middle, middle period Beatles is my favorite Beatles. So, um, so this is, I, I was actually surprised one. that this was released as a single because for some reason I thought that they didn't release any singles at all from rubber soul, but. Well, you were wrong. You lose yes, your Beatles yes, star of the day. <laughs> you get to go listen to uh, okay. the Dave Clark Five instead. <laughs> but moving on to another big uh, famous band, uh, 19th Nervous Breakdown see, by the and Rolling Stones. In my mind, I sort of see this song and Mother's Little Helper, which came out later in 66, as kind of the end of the Stones' early period. Um this was a standalone single, which is fairly common practice for British bands. And um, in the U.S., these singles just usually ended up um, getting shoehorned into whatever album came next. A um, couple of examples of this for the Stones would be um, Ruby Tuesday and Let's Spend the Night Together, ending up on the U- U.S. version of Between the Buttons and 
painted black ending up on the U.S. version of Aftermath. Um, but for some reason, it didn't happen with this song. Um, I think it was ultimately just put on a Greatest Hits compilation. But um, lyrically, it's a lot similar to some of the kink songs in the period. Um, it's kind of a takedown of an upper-class person, in this case, mixed girlfriend. And the gist of it is um, she grew up with everything, and Mick, for the life of him, can't understand why she's so screwed up. And I actually checked to see if the Stones still play this live. And it turns out that they never really have played this regularly. Um, they played it when it first came out and then didn't play it at all for 30 years. And kind of revived it for the Bridges of Babylon tour and have maybe played it twice since then. Um, I think it was like 79 times total, which is nothing compared to like the 1100 times that they played satisfaction live. So, and that, that alone yeah. leads me to believe that the stones themselves probably weren't really that big of fans of the song. So. But I mean, this song would be, you think of the live period of the stones, like I'm thinking of the late sixties when they were at their live peak, early seventies. And this song would have been hard to replicate, I would think, because, um, you know, they did a good job of updating a lot of their 60 songs for that period. But I think this one would have been kind of hard to do. Plus, it's it, it, it's guitar driven, but it's not like I mean, mix mix the most prominent one in this. Song, right. I mean, with his vocals. So um, I don't know. But I do know one thing. I want a headline award. For yeah, this you did. Song. Or, or... or very, very early in my career. Yeah, I wrote uh, when I at my first job. uh Louisville's basketball team lost their 19th game and I used this as a headline and um, among a couple other headlines that won me <laughs> a headline award. So thank you, uh, yeah. Rolling Stones, for that. See. Yeah, I, d I didn't know that. So, yeah. Yeah. Now you know the rest of the story. Uh, let's see, but let's move on to number five. Um, Bob Lind with Elusive Butterfly. Yeah, this is a folk song, and it kind of, when I heard it, because I have to admit, I had to go back and be like, Elusive Butterfly, what the fuck? And, you know, I, I didn't remember that song. And then when I heard it, I kind of, I was like, that's, oh. Okay, that's kind of how I was song. with it, too. Um, so. Yeah, it's it reminded me of Glenn Campbell for some reason, and then I looked it up, and lo and behold, Glenn Campbell covered it uh, a couple of years later, but has kind of a weird arrangement to it. It has an ac acoustic guitar and kind of chamber music type strings. And um, the, the lyrics are pretty um, kind of the whole song has an ethereal quality to it from the lyrics right to the music. So um, I suppose that's why they call it elusive butterfly. But, um, you know, so it's but like I said, it was a folk song and uh, obviously a big yep. hit for Bob Lint. So, moving on, number four is California Dreaming. See, and this was written by John and Michelle Phillips in 1963, a couple of years uh, before the Mamas and Papas got together. Um, they were living in New York. Um, John was a member of the folk group, The Journeyman, at the time. And it was a pretty dreary, dreary day, and 
John woke up in the morning and started working on this song and he got stuck. So he woke up Michelle and got her to help him finish it. And she was homesick for California. And that kind of ended up becoming the theme for the song. And for the record, Michelle was the only member of the Mamas and Papas who was a California native. Um, they originally gave this song to John's journeyman bandmate, Barry McGuire. And the Mamas and Papas sang background vocals on his version. But Lou Adler, who was um, the president of Dunhill Records, um, who McGuire and the Mamas and Papas recorded for, um, convinced them to do their own version and it ended up becoming their second single, the first one to actually make the charts. And it's their signature song, and it's probably one of the best-known songs for the 60s period. Um, kind of has a great melancholy feel to it. Um, great harmonies, and I mentioned this in the last episode, but it has a recorder solo. Yeah. Yep. It's, a, it's a great was song, big. and it's been covered numerous times. Um, um, Jose Feliciano's cover made it in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood last year. And um, a, D a DJ from Germany named Schwimmer um, made it to the top of the Billboard dance charts in 2016 with a kind of dance version of it, which is pretty terrible, actually. But it's... Uh, Says you. I was dancing <laughs> okay. to it right before we started recording. And it was also referenced in the Dead Milkman's Punk Rock Girl, so um, probably doesn't count as a cover, but enough that possibly the Phillips could get a writing credit on it if they wanted to, but they haven't. So... Yeah, John, John Phillips was kind of... Uh, if you had to, like, make a list of some of the worst people in rock and roll. I think he'd probably be. I mean, just for the list, incest uh, allegations alone, I think. Yeah, but he he did other stuff too. He was pretty just much. Kind of a jerk, I mean, um, I think at one point he just kicked Michelle out of the band for no reason and replaced her with somebody else, but still took her out on tour with the rest of the group. So she was just basically sitting there on the wings of the stage while somebody else was singing her parts, stuff like that. So, Yeah. 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 He was, he was a piece so, of work. Uh, but let's move on to three, which is Herman's Hermits with listen people. I have to admit, I didn't really know this song. I, um, so I was really surprised to see it at number three, but it has kind of a, kind of a prototypical start stop type of song like it it basically has the characteristics of a ballad and then but the chorus is actually uh pretty fast so kind of a unique arrangement um from herman's hermits but i i don't know herman's hermits sort of leave me a little bit cold um apart from can't you hear my heartbeat that's a great song but um i don't know i've just never been into the hermits I, I don't know why. Maybe it's because Peter Noon was on VH1 all those yeah. years. I have no idea, but uh, I don't know why that would matter. But um, but this particular song was written by Graham Goldman, who later on 
uh, was in 10 CC and uh, worked as a kind of a songwriter studio artist for uh, many years, including ah, as the Ohio yeah. players once, which is kind of cool. But um, so, but yeah, but if you think of Herman's Hermits, uh, this song would be right in their wheelhouse. I think the reason I don't really, um, you know, they've always left me cold is that they never really varied their sound all that much. I mean, a lot of their songs. Yeah. For same, a long part, right, to right, me anyway. Right. Yeah, I think so. Um, but one, one thing that's interesting about so, them, which um, actually I found out from a Keith Moon biography is that they had like a reputation for being total party animals at the time. And they were on tour with the Who when um, Keith Moon pushed the Cadillac into the swimming pool, and they're actually the ones who encouraged him to do that. So, kind of, kind of unexpected for Herman's Hermit. Cool. Yeah. Instigators. Well, moving on. Very iconic song. Number two is These Boots Are Made for Walking. See, by and Nancy, Nancy was Sinatra. Frank's daughter, which I'm assuming everybody on earth knows. And this was her first top 40 hit. And like most of hits, this was written and produced by Lee Hazelwood. Um, they did a lot of duets together, um, of which Velvet Morning and the original version of Jackson also ended up becoming hits. Um, Hazelwood's a pretty interesting guy. Um, started out producing Dwayne Eddy back in the 50s and eventually became a solo artist. Um, his stuff isn't really quite country or rock and not really quite crooner-ish, but it's kind of like in a weird area area between all three of them. Um, put out a lot of great albums that are worth checking out. But anyway... Um, he was planning on releasing a single on his own, but Sinatra heard it and convinced him that it might sound less nasty coming from a woman. Um, songs vary of its time, has the kind of descending bass line, which is in a lot of 60s songs, um, a lot of tambourines, a big bat brass section, um, basically something you'd expect a go-go dancer to dance to. And for the song Sinatra does basically do that um, and also in the song Nancy kind of throws Hazelwood's kind of half spoken half sung delivery it's almost like she's doing an impression of him and um, ended up going to number one a couple weeks before this chart and it was just starting to head down um, it's been covered hundreds of times um Probably the version that stands out to me as being the funniest is Megadeth. And Hazelwood actually objected to the the Megadeth cover and made them remove it from their album, which is kind of fun. <laughs> but Hazelwood did eventually put out his own version. And um, between the verses, he kind of includes a size about how the Wrecking Crew thought he was nuts when he brought this song to him and um, kind of alludes to them like walking out of the studio and eventually goes to his own disbelief at it actually becoming a number one. But um, kind of 
kind of iconic song from the 60s. I can't believe you didn't mention Full Metal Jacket. Yes, yes, it was. It Very was, prominently it was used, used in that. Uh, Seed where a prostitute's kind of proposing um, have Matthew long time or Matthew Modine to love him long time, basically. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's yeah. one of the best songs of the '60s. I mean, it doesn't get much more '60s than that song. And Nancy Sinatra herself was pretty cool. I mean, her career as a top flight recording artist wasn't that long, but. Um, she made some cool songs. Did one of the better James Bond right. things with uh, "You Only Live Twice," and yep, so yep, very cool song. Yes, we're we're up to the top, yes, Matt. Yes, we are. You Here know the go. girl. Staff Sergeant Barry Sadler, the Ballad of the Green Berets. <clears throat> this was the biggest hit. Of 1966. I'm so very take surprised that, to learn that. Take that future. Take that, you dope smoking, <laughs> LSD taking pinkos. But no, I. This song is very easy to make fun of, um, because it's so straightforward and so sincere. No hint of irony in it at all. It's just a straight up tribute to the Green Berets. The, um, you know the the uh special unit and um and it's an expression of patriotism but it's not over it's you know i the arrangement of the song is over the top but um but the actual lyrics are pretty tasteful i mean to be honest so i'm not going to make fun of the ballad of the green berets it's it's uh it's a relic of its time probably inspired the movie that came later i think a lot of people think this song is from the movie it's mm-hmm. not came bef- well before the movie the green beret which is justifiably made fun of a lot. Like they have the sun <laughs> setting in the East and stuff like that. But, uh, but what's really interesting is the actual story of staff Sergeant Barry Sadler himself, because this dude should have a movie made about him because he lived an interesting life and kind of a lurid life too. But even before this song was recorded, he was in Vietnam in the early years of the American involvement in the Vietnam war and he was actually wounded in the Central Highlands uh, when he was kneecapped by a shit-covered booby trap that got him in, in the knee, and he nearly lost his leg, nearly died. Um, and so, you know, he was he recovered, but um, then a couple years later, he wrote this song, became a phenomenon. Um, the album that was released after the song in the wake of how big of a hit it was uh, became big. And... Um, after his brush with fame, uh, with this song, which, you know, it was a one hit wonder. And so, you know, he had to move on to something else. He actually became a really famous Pulp Fiction novelist. And he created a very popular book series based on the Roman soldier who stabbed Hmm. Jesus in the side during the crucifixion. And, um, and, and, you know, this soldier was forced to walk the earth, um, until the second coming by Jesus. The series is called the Casca series, and it continues to this day under uh, obviously, uh, Barry Sadler himself has passed, but under Ghost Riders. So that series has been going on since, I think, the early 70s. And, you know, it's basically, a, you know, kind of like a Kung Fu-ish type of story of, um, 
Casca walking the earth and he's doomed to be a soldier uh, hmm. for all eternity and never dies. So, so that series still exists to this day. But then later on, um, he was in, I think, Nashville. This was in 1978. And he shot and killed a songwriter named Lee Emerson Bellamy. And he shot him in the head uh, in, a, huh. in an argument over, over his girlfriend. And Bellamy had apparently been harassing Sadler at a bar. Um, and he actually chased him to a bar while Sadler went out to his uh, truck or car. Um, Bellamy, he thought he flashed a gun at him. And so he shot him. And of course he was a soldier. So he was uh, not going to miss. And he shot the guy in the head and killed him. And uh, turned out the guy was unarmed though. And it's also conceivable, or it was thought by the prosecutors that Sadler put a gun in Bellamy's van to strengthen his case for self-defense, even though it had been documented at that time that he had been being harassed by this guy. Um, he was eventually convicted of voluntary manslaughter and did 30 days um, in jail for, for this. So that was in the late seventies. And then in the mid eighties, he moved to Guatemala and he continued to write his books. And he also provided free medical treatment to villagers in Guatemala in 1988, still in Guatemala, he was shot in the head himself. Uh, when there was a dispute uh, and, and there was a dispute whether he accidentally shot himself in the head or whether he was shot by hmm. robbers in, Guata in Guatemala. And so he was flown back to the States for treatment. It was paid for by the publisher of Soldier of Fortune magazine, of course, kind of banking off of, you know, the people who, you know, were fans of his song. And he was actually in a coma for six weeks. He did emerge from it, but he came out of it as a quadriplegic and he had brain damage. And uh, a few years later, um, he disappeared from his family and he was removed from a Cleveland VA hospital by his, um, by his, he didn't disappear. He disappeared from his immediate family and he was removed from this hospital by <laughs> his mom and a couple of green berets. And so a la kind of Casey Kasem, I guess a court battle, ensued for his guardianship um but it would end up being moot because sadler uh hmm. died of a heart attack in 1989 so quite a story i mean the ballad of barry sadler is a hell of a lot more interested interesting frankly right. than yeah. the ballad of the green green berets is so um you know like i said it would make a really interesting movie about you know what happens <laughs> to people after they're brushed with fame so you got to, in, in the words of his own song, you, you know, pin a silver wing upon his yeah. chest. He, he lived a pretty remarkable life and fortunately died under tragic circumstances. So like Paul Harvey yeah. would say, now you know the rest of the story of Staff Sergeant Barry Sadler. So, um, but, you know, this song is also kind of a, uh, you know, a iconic piece of the 1960s in a different way than the Beatles are. So. Um, so Sarge, Staff Sergeant Barry Sadler, the yep. man, uh, yep. he, he got to the top. That was a short clip from our number one song from this week, um, The Ballad of the Green Berets by Staff Sergeant Barry Sadler. Um, hope you enjoyed this week's episode and hope you'll join us next week when we go to the Bicentennial and check out 
the top albums from March 13th, 1976. Um, it's going to be a party at the Moon Tower. Um, good night, everybody. Are you coming in or are you going to piss about all day? You're bloody finished. You know that, Jack. I'm bloody finished, you. <laughs>